So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And as you turn there, I got a, I got a thought question for you this morning. Tell me if you think this is true or false. One of the hardest things you'll ever have to do is wait on the Lord while you suffer. Waiting on the Lord requires faith and hope. But faith and hope are the very things that suffering sometimes attacks. Suffering looks to rob us of confidence in God. And the the loss of confidence makes us impatient in waiting. So every moment of pain and grief and agony is a stabbing sword against belief in God. And when everybody you know is suffering right along with you, then it's hard to find any encouragement from other people. You know, as one family or one community or or one nation, you groan together, how long, O Lord, have you forgotten us? Do you not hear us? So waiting in hope and faith while you suffer is a trying test. But it could be worse. What if the suffering comes from the hand of God himself? What if your pain comes from God's judgment against your decisions and your sins? See, then not only are you waiting for God to deliver you, but you must also trust the very God who is punishing you. Can there be anything more difficult than looking to God, your judge, and hoping that he would be God, your savior? That's the situation we find Israel in when we come to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, if you just sort of put your finger there in the first chapter and hold your place there and flip back to the final chapter, come to Isaiah chapter 66, and you will note that it is a rather thick book. It's the first thing that we observe about the book. This is why it's called, uh, and the prophecy of Isaiah is called a, uh, he's called a major prophet. Major, not in the sense that he is somehow grander or better than the other prophets, but Isaiah and Jeremiah and a couple of others are called major prophets because they are longer books of prophecy. And many have observed that you could basically divide Isaiah into half, and, and that Isaiah as a, as a book kind of mirrors the Bible as a whole. So that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are, are basically regarded as the Old Testament in miniature. And the next 27 chapters of Isaiah are regarded as the New Testament in miniature. So what we have here in this one book of prophecy is really the whole story of the Bible told in a particular period of Israel's history. When they were conquered by Assyria and Babylon and sent into exile. Chapters 1 to 39 sound the alarm about God's judgment. That's the major theme through that section. The Lord has judged Israel for their sin and disobedience, and he will judge the nations for theirs as well. Through these 39 chapters, we get glimpses of the promise of redemption, just enough to keep us going in hope. But time and again, we meet God as the holy and righteous judge. The tone changes when you go to Isaiah 40. So if you want to flip over to Isaiah 40, verse 1. 
there, the chapter opens with this call. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. After 39 chapters of judgment, you kind of want some comfort somewhere, right? And so comfort becomes the sort of major feeling of the, of the text from chapter 40 down to chapter 66. And through these 27 chapters, the major theme is not God's judgment, but God's salvation. That's the big picture, the big idea that's running through that second half of the book. And along the way, the sprinklings now of reminders of his judgment. You might think of the two sections as law and gospel, judgment and salvation. And what we see in Isaiah is that God brings himself glory in both. In both the judging of the nations and in the saving of the nations. And what we learn is that as people who would know God, we dare not take either for granted or lightly. The same God who judges, saves. The same God who saves, judges. And he is not to be toyed with in either case. So let's take a look at Isaiah, chapter, uh, at Isaiah and try to get our mind around these two themes of judgment and salvation. If you're taking notes, the, the first sort of point, if you will, is God judges the nations. God judges the nations. Isaiah opens, notice in chapter 1, verse 1, by telling us about the, the period of his ministry. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The four kings mentioned include about a 50-year period from 739 B.C., the death of uh, Uzziah, to 686 B.C., the death of Hezekiah. And during that 50-year period, Assyria was the sort of superpower among the nations. And what we're going to see in these first sort of 10 chapters or so of Isaiah is that God is going to use Assyria, a pagan nation, to judge Israel, his covenant people, because of their sins and their transgressions. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 2 and 4 gives us a quick glimpse into the spiritual state of Israel. Look there with me. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This is God speaking. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You see the picture there. God says, Israel are my people, but they don't even know their daddy. In fact, in verse 3, dumb oxes and donkeys know who their parents are. But these people of mine, known by my name, don't know me. Notice the end of verse 4. They are utterly estranged. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are laden or weighed down with iniquity or sin. That's how the letter opens. That's how the prophecy opens. The nation has become so corrupt, their, their worship, beloved, listen, their worship was an offense to God. Look over, look down in verses 10 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's as though God is in the courtroom with his people and his people are on trial. And he's reading here the record of their wrongs before him. Here's the people who come to him with offerings and God says, I'm so tired of y'all profaning my presence with these false offerings. How are you going to worship me while you're also oppressing people? Why are you, how are you going to call on my name when you are so unjust and unrighteous? The main problem was that they refused to hear God's word. Look with me at Isaiah 30 verse 9. If you're new to the Bibles, when you hear me say the chapter number, chapter 30, that's the big number on the page. You hear me say the verse number, verse 9, that's the small number. So Isaiah chapter 30, big number, small number, verse 9. This is what God says to his people, how he describes them. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. These are hard-headed kids. Spiritually babies, kids, right? Or look down at Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 5. There God is, even down to the end of the book, telling them about the importance of hearing his word and pointing out the hardness of their heart. Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 5. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. Ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no advantage of it, they say? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Again, he's looking at his people and he's seeing the hypocrisy, isn't he? The claim to be worshiping him while at the same time living in unrighteousness and injustice and oppression as a nation. The people who were made to love and worship God as his still children have rebelled against him and profaned his worship. So God judged his own people. 
that again is what the major first section is about. So if you turn back to Isaiah 3 verse 1, we get the, the first hint of the first statement of God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and, and from Judah support and supply. All support of bread and all support of water. And it goes on. Isaiah 5 verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard? Now here God has compared Israel to a vineyard. A perfectly dug and planted and watered and cared for vineyard. But then he says this in verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And this is what has provoked God in his holy judgment. This is what has provoked his anger toward his people. So that we come down to Isaiah 59, verse 2. And there the prophet Isaiah says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. What terrible words. What a profound truth for us never to forget. That man's sins separate him from God. And not only does man's friend sins separate him from God, but they then turn God toward him in anger and righteous judgment. And this is referring to God's people. And this is the context in which Isaiah is called to prophesy. So in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we begin to see Isaiah's commission there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah is given this glorious scene, this well-known scene where he peers into the very heavenly courts and there he sees the angels around God covering their eyes and covering their feet and covering their bodies and the wings have eyes and they are declaring in antiphonal voice, holy, holy, holy. And again, holy, holy, holy. And this great vision of the transcendence and the holiness of God fills Isaiah's vision. And you'll see there around verses 5 and 6 what the effect is on Isaiah. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The holiness of God created a trauma and an impact in Isaiah's heart. And God gives this great glimpse of his grace and atonement. He sends an an angel to take a stone, a, a burning coal off of the altar and to take that coal and to touch it to Isaiah's lips, cleansing Isaiah in that act of atonement. So that Isaiah now with purified mouth and purified speech might become God's mouthpiece and might speak to God's people about God's holiness and character and God's demands upon their lives. And so we see that in Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 11. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I, Isaiah, said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And that could all sound very confusing. Why would God send a prophet to his people who were in error to point out their error only for God to himself say they will not hear and they will not see. It's because, beloved, salvation is in God's hands. It's not merely an intellectual matter. And the moral deadness of the heart isn't cured by self-effort. It isn't cured by our own spiritual power. God must open blinded eyes. He must unstop deaf ears. God must, by the power of his spirit, he must grant that as a grace to his people. Even his people here, Israel, who are his covenant people, their their hearing is dull, their eyes are blinded, and God sends a prophet to confirm them in their blindness and their dullness. Sometimes, beloved, God sends the prophet or the preacher to aggravate the condemnation of his people, to further them in it, to speak such a way as to both proclaim the truth of God's greatness and have it produce yet more hardness in the heart. Sometimes we we sort of think about evangelism, we think about preaching, and we may have the question, why isn't the auditorium full? Why aren't churches seeing revivals? Why aren't more people being saved? And if we're not careful, we can begin to think, well, that must be something wrong with the preaching or something wrong with the singing or we're not praying enough. No, beloved, there are two results to every sermon. There is repentance and there is hardness. There is turning to God and there is turning from God. There is the granting of grace And there is the the granting of condemnation. Isaiah is a prophet who's going to preach truthfully and faithfully, but Israel is a people who will not hear, not all of them. Isaiah 7.1 opens, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, in those days the kings of Syria and Israel, they fought war against Jerusalem. The house of David is divided. The long years of war and exile begin at this point. So does God's judgment. But now God is not only judging Israel. Chapters 13 to 22, God moves on from judging Israel to judging the nations around Israel. So part of what the book of Isaiah is teaching us is that God is a ruler over all nations and a ruler over all history. God not only controls the future of those who claim to worship him, he controls the future of those nations who do not know him at all. The very nations God may use to judge his people become the nations that God also judges for their own wickedness. So we'll just skim these real quickly. The Lord deals with Babylon in chapters 13 and 14. Look there at chapter 13, verse 19. Isaiah the prophet records these words for us. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. This nation, rich and wealthy and powerful, glorious. It's nothing before God. He will overthrow them like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Or the Lord deals with Assyria in chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. Look there at verse 25. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. Or Philistia, in the verses that follow, 28 to 32, but zero in on verse 31. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. Chapters 15 and 16, God deals with Israel's ancient enemy, Moab. Their treachery to God's people. So chapter 15, verse 1, because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. And not only Moab, but chapter 17, God deals with that other power, Syria, that often afflicted Israel. He cites the capital city of Damascus there in chapter 17, verse 1. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. In chapters 18 to 20, the Lord moves out of what we call the Middle East down into Africa. He refers to Cush, might be translated or, or referring to Nubia. Sub-Saharan Africa, Southern Africa, and refers to Northern Africa as he refers to Egypt in chapters, uh, excuse me, yeah, chapters 19 and 20. So look at Isaiah 18, verse 6. God deals with Cush there. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, give us Israel's future or excuse me, Egypt's future. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out and I will confound their counsel and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. Eventually, Isaiah will show us God's judgment on the entire earth. I'll look at chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Sometimes people think that this judgment belongs only in the Old Testament. And sometimes people like to make a distinction between what they call the God of the Old Testament, who is full of judgment, and the God of the New Testament, who is loving and forgiving. They give the sense that God is throwing a temper tantrum in the Old Testament. And somewhere along the way, he kind of grew up. He matured. He, he mellowed out, became reasonable. So now, while God does not like sin, he understands. He knows that people are weak, and frail. They mean well. So God doesn't get into all that judgment business anymore. Christians sometimes think, kind of like this. Some professing Christians use words like grace as permission for sin. 
They tell us we are not under law, but under grace. Of course, that's true. We do live under grace. Praise God. But Titus 2, 11 to 14 tells us that God's saving grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we live sober and self-controlled and upright lives in this present evil age. So God's grace corrects what's wrong in God's people, if it really is grace. And God's people must recognize from Israel to the church what the apostle Peter said. Judgment begins at the household of God. You see, the line to draw from God's judgment of the nations in uh, Isaiah is not a line from Israel to the United States or not a line from Babylon to, you know, modern day Iraq. The line to draw from Israel is to the church. It's with God's people as a covenant people that God is displeased, not with Israel as a nation state that has bad policies. No, he's he's concerned with the injustice among God's people, among his own people who are his covenant people known by his name, who are meant to live in the righteousness and justice that he himself has. And before he turns to judging with the judging of nations who do not know him and are not called by his name and are not called to represent him, he turns to his church first. And he shakes his people first. And he pours out his correction upon his church, his bride. Says to his people, bring forth righteousness. Bring forth justice. Stop trampling my courts. Live like you know me. And the church gets it backwards in so many ways, don't we? Right. We, we, are, we are, as it were, concerned about being prophetic with the nations and casual with the church. When God sends his prophets to his people and deals with the nations on his own time. We are so concerned about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and it is, and we should be concerned, and we should be prayerful, and we should do our part, but we're so concerned that, that, that we have the right kinds of laws, and we, we sort of fight for the right kinds of society, and that we Christianize everything, not recognizing that a Christianized nation is not the same as a Christian church. And so we're so prophetic. The wrongs of the outsiders And we're so casual about the corruptions of our own heart. And so God gives us a book like Isaiah and a prophet like Isaiah who starts with his people and brings forth this word of correction. And this is what we know. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. (laughs) There is only one God and he is holy and righteous and true. Every person must give an account to this God who judges all the earth justly. We are not to think that because we have not yet been judged that we won't ever be judged. Do not think that because God is patient with you, beloved, that God is forgetful. He knows. He sees. He keeps an account. He is coming to hold the sinner accountable. And the question is, beloved, whether Christian or non-Christian, are we ready to meet him? Are we ready to see him on the day of his judgment? And how will we stand with him? Will we stand like the nations, not knowing him at all? 
Will we stand like his people who, though claiming his name, live contrary to his name? Or will we be among the righteous who trust in God, who lean on him for righteousness, who seek shelter in his mercy? Because just as judgment runs through this book, if you keep in notes, we come to the second part of the sermon. So too does redemption and restoration. If God counts our sins against us, how will we escape his judgment? If we experience the chastisement of God for our sins, what are we to do? Well, if God's judgment should make us sober, then the promise of redemption should make us hopeful. As we said before, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah primarily focuses on on God's coming wrath. There is a dark cloud looming over the nation and looming over the world in those 39 chapters. And, and, And in those sort of 39 chapters where the sky is dark, every once in a while there is a, a light that pierces through, a glimmer, a ray. We see it as early as Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Look there what the Lord says to Israel. He's announced their judgment, but notice the rope that he throws them. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, They shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. And so even in the midst of his announcing judgment, God throws out these life preservers. And he calls people who in chapter 2 and chapter 3 were acting like oxen, uh, dumber than oxen. He says in, chapter, in verse 18, let's reason together. Come to your senses. Get, get right thinking. Come, let's consider what's really real. Not only am I a God of judgment, and because I've told you that, you should tremble. But I am so a God of mercy and righteousness. And because of that, you should come to me. And so through these early chapters, he gives us glimpses of this salvation. The shortest chapter in Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 4. There, Isaiah introduces us to this, this symbolic representation of God's Savior. He tells us of the branch. Isaiah 4, beginning in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This picture is God's salvation of his people. This It's not literally a, a limb. It's a symbol. 
It's a symbol for a person who brings salvation to Israel. And, and Isaiah reaches for those images that are popular in Israel's history, the pillar of cloud and the fire. It reaches back to the Exodus narrative. He says, there's coming another Exodus where we exit this exile and we enter into this new Jerusalem. It will be the day of the branch. This branch, if you look down in Isaiah chapter 11, this branch we find is a descendant of King David. Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the righteous branch. The seed of Jesse, the one who roots up from the stump of Jesse, a descendant of King David, a savior. And Isaiah just keeps giving us these clues. So in Isaiah chapter seven, he talks not about the righteous branch. He talks about a son. If you've ever been around a Christian church at Christmas time, you no doubt heard these verses read. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, for example. There the prophet says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What a marvelous sign that is. The virgin, one who's not known a man, will actually become pregnant. And that will be a sign to the nations. And and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And Isaiah 9 tells us more about this son. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. This is no ordinary child. Isaiah says there, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All these breadcrumbs left for Israel. All these pin lights in the darkness that helped them see their way to hope. All these indications that God has not finally abandoned them in his judgments. His judgments are are meant to be teachers. They are meant to be schoolmasters that turn them then to this light and turn them to this coming Savior. So that by the time we come to the second half of Isaiah, we find that these distant lights become the the bright shining sun of the book. We begin to get a close-up look at how God will deliver his people and how he will redeem them. And we come to learn that the redemption includes not just their deliverance from exile then, but it also includes their eternal redemption from sin and hell. That God has in mind not only the the earthly well-being of his people, but the eternal joy of their souls with him.
So we've already made reference to Isaiah chapter 40, which begins the, the second part of the book, where Isaiah says there in verse 1, comfort you, comfort you, my people. And it goes on to say in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I love it when God changes his tone of voice. He had been booming out his wrath for 39 chapters. And now he said to his prophet, speak tenderly, speak softly. Let her know that her warfare is ended. Let her know that her sins are forgiven. Let her know that her God remembers her. And God tells us in verse 11 of chapter 40, the reason is not because some human king will rise up and lead the nation to glory. In the Old Testament, the the image of shepherd, we think of it as applying to pastors. Actually, the image of shepherd in the Old Testament applies to kings and rulers in authority. They were also to be the shepherds of God's people. And so in verse 11, God makes clear who that shepherd is. He says, he himself will, t- will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. I love this. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It will be God who's ultimately gentle with his people, who will carry them like a shepherd next to his heart, who will lead them where he wishes them to go. It will be God that Israel has to look to. That's important because human beings have a tendency to look for human deliverers. Just before we come to Isaiah 40, we get Isaiah's chapters 36 to 39. Those four chapters are dealing with King Hezekiah. And here's what we learn about Hezekiah. He looked to the pagan armies to defend him against his enemies. Hezekiah thought that as long as he himself personally escaped being sacked by those enemies and, and pillaged that everything else was okay. He would, he would leave the rest to be sorted out by those who came after him. It's a wicked thought. But God is teaching all throughout this book and particularly in the example of Hezekiah's life that we should not look to men for our salvation. Somehow Hezekiah missed that. So keep your finger there in Isaiah 40. Turn over to Isaiah 31 verses 1 and 3. Long before Hezekiah came on the scene, Isaiah had been teaching, look to the Lord, look to the Lord. Don't trust men. So he says in Isaiah 31 verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But what? Do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Verse 3, The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Or go back further, Isaiah 12, verse 2. There the Lord has the prophet say this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You ever want to know how to define salvation? You can define it in a single name. God. Yahweh. 
the covenant Lord. He is our help and our salvation. Or all the way back to Isaiah 3, verse 22. The prophet has been saying, look to God and not to man. Verse 22 says this. Isaiah chapter 3. That's not what I'm looking for. Too many cross-reference. Chapter 2, verse 22. Very simple. It's a good word for us today. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? When it comes to saving you from suffering, saving you from enemies, saving your soul, it's God who does that. What is man but a vapor? The breath in his nostrils is gone before he inhales again. He's fleeting. And he is not terrible. He is not awesome. He is not majestic. But God is. God, the ever-living God, is awesome. He is terrible. He is majestic. He is all-glorious and all-powerful. And He is the Deliverer. He is the Savior. And so we don't tremble because of news of nuclear weapons in North Korea. (laughs) And nor do we think that God will protect us from North Korea because America's the city on the hill. Because America is not Jerusalem. America is not Israel. (laughs) Our president is not our king. He is not our savior. Whether this one or the last one or any who've come before. God is king. God is Lord. And though his people be scattered throughout all the earth, his eyes are on each and every one of us to keep us and to protect us, to deliver us from our trials, to deliver us from our suffering. And so Isaiah tells his people in that day, and God speaks to us in this day, in the words of Isaiah 7, 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And in the words of Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in the words of Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no other Savior. What a wonderful thing when the only Savior says, do not fear. Be firm in your faith. Trust me. That's where hope and suffering comes from. It comes from the God who is the father of compassion and the God of mercy. Who comforts us in all of our suffering. Isn't that Paul's takeaway in 2 Corinthians 1? God comforts his people by being with them in his suffering. Isaiah 44 argues that because God is the only God then idolatry is dumb. Idols cannot save, according to Isaiah 46. Babylon cannot save, according to Isaiah 47. 
According to Isaiah 48, there is no place for the wicked. But Isaiah 43 teaches that God is the only Savior, as we just saw. And Isaiah 45 says that because God is the only Savior, we should turn to Him. He accomplished our salvation through His servant. It was introduced to us in Isaiah 42. Look there. Isaiah begins to focus on a particular servant. His eyes are off the nations now, and his eyes are fixed on God. And there are places where he refers to the servant and he seems to be referring to all of Israel as God's chosen people. But as you go on in these chapters, it's clear that, yes, Israel is God's servant, but God is looking forward to a particular servant who will be the one to accomplish our salvation. So Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And these words we know from the Gospels, right? A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. This coming servant is gentle. So that firm faith may also look like struggling faith. Did you notice that? It may look like a bruised reed or a burning wick. So the exhortation to be firm in faith is not an exhortation to be superhero Christians. It's not an exhortation to be perfect Christians. It's not an exhortation to be self-sustaining um, Christians. All those things you, knew, do, you do know, beloved, are contradictions. There are no self-sustaining Christians. There are no perfect Christians. There are no superhero Christians. There are only weak Christians who, despite their weakness, flicker still in faith. And despite their being bruised, are not finally broken. God looks to such faith with tenderness. He will not snuff it out. He will not break it. And so we read words like this, Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. That's the invitation God has to everyone. Have your sins blotted out to him. Come to him. Why? Because he sent us a savior. The servant. Isaiah 53. That well-known chapter. These words cherished by God's people for millennia now. For 2,700 years. Isaiah writes these words. Referring to this servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearing is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah is given a vision down the corridors of time and he sees what we have come to know in its full that God's chosen one his servant is Jesus his son his unique son whom God sent into the world to do just as Isaiah says here to be crushed for us to be pierced for our transgression to be chastised or punished by God, not for any wrong that he did, but because of our sins. And all of that reaches its zenith, all of that reaches its climax in the cross at Calvary, where the Son of God is stretched wide and nailed to a cross, and where men did not esteem him as beautiful, but esteemed him as cursed and mocked him, where they beat him and spat upon him and rejected the one Savior of God. And not in anger, but in love. He prays for sinners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Father answers that prayer by pouring out His wrath on His Son instead of on us. And the culmination of Isaiah's hope and the fulfillment of Israel's comfort, indeed the fulfillment of the whole world's deliverance, is achieved that day on the cross when Christ is crucified and the Son of God died, when the wrath of God is finally satisfied.
three days later, God raises him from the grave, proving that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and that eternal life may be had in him. So, beloved, who are you trusting this morning? You trusting men? Well, certainly not chariots and horses, but maybe war planes and battleships, maybe elected leaders and politicians, maybe family and friends, or maybe yourself. You're trusting that you will somehow be good enough. Well, Isaiah tells us, don't look at man. Do not trust in man. What, what is man? What are you? But a vapor. You're here for a moment. And then there is either judgment or life. And God calls you this morning to choose life. To flee the judgment that's to come. The judgment that will swallow up all those who rebel against him. All those without the sense of ox and donkeys who reject the creator who made them. For them there is wrath. But for those who repent of their sins and confess their sins and trust in Christ as the promised savior of the world, who who believe he is the son of God and believe that his death counted for them and that his resurrection counts for them and that their lives now are in his hands and follow him as their savior, all of those... They find life that never ends, forgiveness of sins, righteousness with God. And they live not ever fearing the judgment of God, but only expecting the love of God. This is what Jesus has achieved in fulfilling all that Isaiah foresaw. This is why Jesus must be believed if we would live. We understand why now Isaiah 40 begins with comfort. And Isaiah 55 calls us to to come to God. Notice there what it says, Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do you realize God charges you nothing for your salvation? That's no payment, that's no purchase. There's no bargaining that's needed, only coming, only coming to Jesus, only putting your faith in him and following him as your Lord. This is how you reason with God. You say, God, I have nothing to purchase my salvation. I have nothing of myself to offer to you. I have only my sins, which have brought me rightly your judgment. Now, please forgive me because of Christ. He has paid it all. He has shed his blood. He has redeemed sinners like me. This is your promise that if I believe in you, then at your word, I can expect that you will save me. Come. Without money. Without price. Come and receive the riches of God in Jesus Christ. It is Christ who makes our salvation possible. Beloved, in the final analysis, it isn't whether you are a Jew or a Gentile that determines whether you enter God's kingdom in love. It is not whether you do the right thing and feel the right way all the time. It is that we feel one thing, broken and contrite over our sins. And we do one thing. We turn to Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's the question. 
God has provided Jesus as our Savior. Jesus has atoned for our sins. He was pierced for our transgression. He was chastised, and by his punishment, we receive peace. There's nothing left for God to do. It's only left for us to believe, to trust in Jesus, to follow him. And if we are not broken and contrite about our sins, beloved, do not be deceived. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with our hearts. The problem is not in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. The problem is in our unwillingness to receive it. That's Isaiah's message. He concludes this book, this wonderful prophecy, in chapter 60 down to 66. I commend it to you for your evening reading. And the main thing that Isaiah and God through Isaiah wishes us to see is that he has prepared for us a future. It's not a future like this one. You see, this life that we have right now, well, it's mixed, isn't it? There's beauty and there's brokenness. There's joy and there's pain. There's sunshine (laughs) and rain. But that day that God has prepared for us, it's only sunshine and never rain. It's only blessing and never brokenness. It's only joy and never pain. Isaiah chapter 60 begins this focus on this future Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, which will replace this earthly Jerusalem. In verses 1 and 2, Isaiah calls to Israel and God calls to us, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness to peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. We will share in God's glory. That's what we were made for. So verse 19 of Isaiah 60. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day. For brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. And those of you who know your Bibles, your minds have already run down to Revelations chapters 21 and 22. Where John sees that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city coming down from God. And he says, in that place is no sun. For God is the light of that place. And in that place we cast down crowns and we cast down human glory in exchange for the great glory of God himself and our part in it. There is coming a day where God will finally make all things right. And coming a day when he will remember his mercy. And coming a day when the humble and the contrite will have a place next to his throne. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Is God looking to you? Are you humble and contrite? You tremble at his word. Tremble both with reverence for God 
and with hope for that coming glory. Isaiah saw the day of God's coming glory. We're meant to see it too. We're meant to see it more clearly than Isaiah because we know Jesus. And therefore we're meant to hope more surely than Israel because we know our Savior has come. Glory is ours if Christ is ours. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we give you praise for this work that you have done. It is marvelous in our eyes how you took one man long ago, Abraham, and made him the father of the faithful. How you took he and his wife who were unable to have children and how you opened the womb and gave them the children of promise. And how you grew that one man and his child into a a nation of 12 tribes and made with them a covenant and gave them your word and preserved your promise in all the earth. And how you looked forward to the day when not only Israel would be your people, but a day when you would send forth your true son, Jesus, our Savior, and through him would whistle to all the nations and gather all who would believe. How will you bring from the exile of sin and the darkness of a fallen world people into your glorious light and make them who were no people a new people and give us the hope of eternal life? Lord, we would not have dreamed of this. Our best creative writers would not have put this in a novel. Our best playwrights and screenwriters would not have made multi-million dollar films except that you authored this from before the worlds began. And you have written this story into the very fabric of history. And so now we pray, bring men to yourself save sinners, give life through hope in Jesus Christ and make us firm in faith until he comes that we might not doubt because of suffering but we might hope because of Jesus. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.